Well, welcome to the Apologetics.com radio show, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. I'm Harry Edwards, your host for this evening. It is, I can't believe it's already January 28th. I know. Right? Crazy. But still, Happy New Year to everyone. I guess this is um, our first live show with, with our group. And when I say our group, I'm looking at you, <laughs> Lenny, and uh, Jacob's not here. He's doing more important stuff, I guess, and uh, he needs to be away. So uh, we're, we're going to miss him tonight. Um, but anyways, um, Lenny, how was your, how was the holiday season for you? It was nice. Uh, we had some rain. That's fine. We needed it around here. Yeah. But uh, we had to get a nice time getting together with family and uh, kind of just a calm Christmas and New Year's, which was uh, appropriate. So uh, good, good. Yeah. Now I know I, I've been seeing a lot of your. Uh, do, are you on TikTok now? Is that what you're trying yeah. to do? Yeah. Well, okay. not TikTok, or, but a lot of Instagram. Instagram, um, like short. Yeah, short reels, reels. and things like there that. We're putting them on Facebook yeah. now, just trying to push a lot more of these little uh, snippets. That's cool. That's so. great. Um, why don't you tell our listeners uh, the ministry that you started many years ago? How how it's doing, and what are some of your your plans maybe this well uh, this yeah year. come reason ministries uh was one of the kind of the pioneering online apologetics organizations start off 1996 all right uh we uh launched a website come let us reason together taken from isaiah 118 and uh launched our podcast in 2006 and so uh been writing, of course, lots of articles, uh, done things of that nature, done some speaking. I was at the beginning of the year at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary at one of their conferences. How was that, by uh, the way? That was that's an interesting conference. It's a great time because it's an entire week, and the speakers and the experts actually inter they um, kind of live with the attendees so we all have meals together things of that nature you know and uh it's 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 a pretty intensive set of week of who are some of the speakers uh you well you had um this year you had um craig hazen was there um uh, sam alberry was there rob bowman tim mcgrew uh of course uh robert stewart um Lisa Fields, just a, a lot of kind of well-known names. James Walker, mm-hmm. uh, who actually brought a, an atheist friend with him, and they had a discussion online, which was pretty pretty interesting. Nice, and, nice. But but a lot of a lot of folks that, with names that you'd recognize are are there, and uh, that was a great time. And then uh, in March, we're doing a, a conference here in Southern California. Uh, that I'm putting on called Dare to Defend. And you can find out more about that with daretodefend.com. Uh, Jay Warner Wallace, Hugh Ross. We have Beckett Cook speaking with us. Uh, Craig Hazen's going to be out again. Uh, so there's there's a lot of uh, really good topics. The who's that, who in Christian apologetics. Yeah, uh, yeah. Monique Dusan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and talking about some of the issues that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, on the shift in culture and critical theory and sexual liberation and right. all of those kinds of things. So that's that's available. Uh, it, that'll be March 10th and 11th. Okay, just check it out on comereason.org. Right. All right, very good. Well, um, 
Tonight is actually going to be pretty impactful. Uh, we are continuing our discussion on Truman's book, and uh, it's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And uh, I would encourage you to pick it up if you haven't. Um, s- some of the, um, the who's who in Christian apologetics and just anyone who uh, knows uh, and cr- critiques culture today, they would recommend this book. In fact, uh, Rod Dreher uh, said, this is without question one of the most important religious books of the decade. So that's, that's really high praise coming from Rod Dreher who also writes in, in this, um, kind of like in this field. So that's, that's really uh, nice of him to say that. Ben Shapiro said, this is the most important book of our moment. And I'm beginning to appreciate it and realize that uh, I think those gentlemen are telling the truth here. Chapter 7 is, is gold, you know, this is really good. I think this is where it really, uh, I think Truman does a masterful job of synthesizing the ideas of Marx and Freud. So this is the chapter where, you know, after he's done a little bit of genealogy of ideas, beginning with Nietzsche, Marx, Darwin, um, now you come to, I, I think, the, the meat of this book. Uh, yeah. So I, I yes, think chapter seven is the is the twentieth century turn. It's the it's where, uh, and he had laid out in the early chapters with Philip Reif where we had, if you remember, yes. political man and then religious man and then the uh, economic economic oh, man, economic man, and then the uh, psych- and now this is where it all turns. And again, those first three types of individuals measured themselves and their self identity against external reference. How do I compare to what the church expects a person to be? How do I compare to uh, what a good citizen would be as a Roman citizen or as a Greek citizen, Athenian or something like that? How do I measure myself against even the other industrialists and uh, the people who go to work every day and say, I'm, you know, earning my bread, providing for my family. Those are all external reference. Now, all of a sudden, we see where it starts to invert. And your reference of yourself is how you feel, how you understand who you are. It's and very so subjective. It's subjective yeah. and it's very internal. You're, you're, yes. you're internally examining. So there's nobody out there to measure yeah. against it's yeah. all about you You're right and, and the interesting thing when it comes Perfect. to worldviews when the external no longer works in the mind of uh, a person unaided by the holy mm. spirit all right if there's nothing out there uh there's no more enchantment right they don't find it out there right. then the next place to look is yourself there's nowhere well, else well because that's yeah. the only thing and and one of the reasons why this becomes successful is because we live in an age that has done a couple of things. Marshall McLuhan makes a very pertinent point of as the rise of media becomes to, starts to dominate our understanding of the world and the progenitors of that media become more sophisticated where you're not just telling a story or reporting a story, you're making people feel it. You're making them experience it, right? Film immerses you now. And so your feelings become more important. 
work becomes less critical in the sense that it's always going to be there. So you have the rise of affluence, you have the rise of technology, which makes work easier, not as dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you're guaranteed three meals a day. You don't have to worry about that stuff. You, so, so your survival capabilities are taken care of. And now you can start thinking about, and the only thing that you actually do know is how you feel. That's the only thing that you can say, I know that I know that this is how I feel. Right. And because uh, media can take you places and all of a sudden feelings become paramount and important. And and I think some of the guys in the 20th century picked up on that fairly early. And that's why they said, ah, uh, we can take Freud, who made such a big splash, and we can use him to rescue our project of making, quote unquote, liberating all people from the, the drudgeries of the world, from the the, the nihilistic self-existence that they're trying to capture. Well, specifically also sexual repression. Well, yeah. that's they, they use it through sexual repression, yeah. but they first of all see people as oppressed in general, just, you know, right. and, and as we said, it, was, it, was, it started off Marxist, right? right it started right. off the oppressed were the people who were the have-nots. You had, you had a very small number of people who lived very well, the, the land barons, the railroad tycoons, the oil magnets. And you had a whole lot of people who, in their eyes, were working a lot of hours and not getting a lot in return. Now, you still see that today. The reality is actually different. You know, if you see a Jeff Bezos or a, or a Elon Musk or these guys, they're not putting in four hours a day. They're putting in 12. They, they live their work, and which is why their relationships all suffer, because they're, they're singularly obsessed with that conquering of whatever uh, space they're in. Um, but people assume that, oh, they've got it easy, I've got it hard, and I'm only getting nickels, and they're getting you know dollars. And uh, So they saw that, in the 20th century, uh, Frankfurt guys, the the um, Horkheimers mm-hmm. of the world, wanted to say, how do we get this Marxism going so that we can make everybody equal, so that I can have as much equality as, as everybody else? Right. And the problem, of course, is that when you put Marxism in the real world, as the Soviet overthrow of the czars show— it actually kind of collapses in on itself, and it doesn't actually work in the real world. Right. And it, we're it frust- seeing that right now. On yeah, phone. yeah. It, it frustrated a lot of them. They're like, "Well, what can we do?" Because it, it should have been. I mean, Marx made it sound so so plausible that economically it's going to happen that the proletariat is going to revolt against that those bourgeois guys who have all the money and have right. all the the control and. We want the control, and we want to have it all shared equally. And the problem was yeah. it wasn't happening. That didn't so, happen at all, so they yeah. said, "Well, it must be then not economics that's the driver. It must be psychology that's the driver. Specifically, the most repressive aspect of psychology is sexual, because that's what Freud said. Freud said it's our sex that's repressed, and therefore that's the lever that we can get. Because if there's something that pulls people more than money for most folks it's sexual 
desire. Right. It's stronger than uh, materialism, yeah. according to some of these thinkers. So uh, thanks for setting that up, uh, Lenny. Uh, w- wonderful uh, uh, just weaving all the ideas together and uh, through history. Now, you were mentioning how Marx thought that perhaps this um, journey to utopia would happen through uh, communism, mm-hmm. but it failed. And uh, just going to Truman's work here, he noted that for Marx's theory to work, that two things had to happen. Capitalism uh, had to fail under its own weight. And uh, second is the working class to develop a political system to that justifies the wrong assumption that both the working and the middle class possess values that work against each other that yeah. really didn't happen uh, they were working together not not against each other so we know that capitalism did not fail uh, and it had a chance to fail in 1929 when the stock market crashed and uh, which led to the Great Depression and yet uh, America survived that and even thrived and and Germany which was, probably the worst hit yes. in the world depressed movement because they were they were the conquered of world war one and they so they were embittered by the fact that they lost yeah as well as they had to try and rebuild their um their, their economy their entire economy yeah. right. as they were decimated from the war right, right. and so instead it, of turning to communism they right. turned to uh, fascism. Right, right, right. <laughs> Which, that didn't work either. No, well, no yeah. ultimately, no, because you you got one totalitarian guy right, right. Uh, coming. But, but what's interesting in that is, if Marx was right, then in the, we have, we have Russia that has, again, the czars living the high life, the, the, the there's a, there's a small bourgeois contingent. Right. That's, that holds all of the power, all the landowners, uh, much like the Middle Ages where you have the lords controlling all the land and then the serfs m- kind of working it. Uh, Russia's kind of still in that state. Yeah. And you would have expected there that the workers would rise up, revolt, and take control of everything. That's, that was Marx's theory. Right, right. It didn't happen in Germany. It didn't happen in the Soviet Union or, or Russia at that time. Right. Um, so in the real world, all of a sudden, Marx's theory isn't playing out the way Marx said it would play out. Right, and right. this bothered some people. It this did. bothered the communists in the 1930s, right. especially after Lenin. When Stalin comes into power, right. he's even worse than Lenin. Right. I mean, it's not just a temporary uh, dictatorship of the proletariat. It's like a heavier hand. Right, right. And they're like... What went wrong? <laughs> yeah. Well, which led to uh, again this Italian thinker Antonio Gramsci just picking up the pieces of failed Marxism, and uh, you were mentioning that he wrote a lot of this stuff in prison. Yes. Um, and um, and again, Gramsci's writing when Benito Mussolini yeah, is oh, coming yes. into power, and this is why Gramsci's in prison, because Mussolini is another fascist. That's right. Doesn't want communism. <laughs> That's right. And so, um, th- th- this, and this is an apology for cultural apologetics, right? So he was smart enough to realize that uh, it, it failed miserably. So 
again, in, in the journey and race toward utopia, thinking that uh, Marx uh, had the solution, uh, but maybe the application of it was all wrong, uh, you're not appealing to a class division. Uh, capitalism is not going to fail. So perhaps it's through the cultural institutions like schools and media now that they have to embed themselves. Yeah, what what Gramsci's view was, and he talks about hegemonic mm -hmm. power. He's the one who coins that term, hegemonic. Right, okay. uh, what he says basically is two things. He says, first of all, the intelligentsia isn't separate from the people. Right. They're he doesn't want to create another yeah, class. He doesn't, right? he doesn't want to have the intelligentsia. He wants the intelligentsia to be considered part of the people, but the part of the people that have insight and understanding. And the problem is the rest of the people have been so blinded by the lies and the assumptions that have been fed to them that they can't see what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to. So theoretically, in the Wall Street crash, capitalism did fail. Everybody lost all their money. And, and to the minds of these communists, they're saying, well, see, this is the failure where you, you say everything's going to get better, everything's going up. Now everybody's down and starving again. This is, the, this is a failure of capitalism. Even modern-day communists will, will say these kinds of things. And they said, but the problem was the class society that should then overthrow these owners didn't know that that was their role. And so the intelligentsia has to come in and, and set it up for them so that they understand that. So how do we do this? Well, we don't do it through symposia. We do it through the cultural avenues that the lower class most inhabit. Right. So the public schools, the movies, the, the you know, yeah, and Fashion. Shelley and... Sure. Percy and all the right. guys that the romantics that we read about Woodsworth and these guys, um, they held the same idea. And in their era, in the early 19th century, it was poetry. Now it's radio, st story, film, um, getting into the colleges to instruct the instructors to give. So, so we, if we sell the um, educated class, this idea, then they're going to go out and they're going to start running the schools and teach the children, and then they can perpetuate right, right. this idea. And a lot of that thinking kind of resulted in the formation of the Frankfurt School, uh, yeah. where a bunch of these thinkers, a lot of them German thinkers uh, during that time, they just wanted to bring down, take down these institutions that apparently are keeping the uh, oppressors uh, in power, in, in their privileged positions. And so out of the Frankfurt School uh, comes critical th theory. Now, I know there's a lot of talk about CRT, critical race theory, and, and everybody seems to, to have an opinion about it. But we want to highlight, I know, Lenny, you made it very clear that really there's a whole subcategories and CRT is just one of them. Yes. But uh, critical theory, actually, again, coming out of the Frankfurt School, uh, has a lot of, I want to say, damnable qualities, really. Uh, like you were saying, not any of those uh, were based in data or fact. No. A, a lot of them were just uh, musings by these uh, social theorists, right? So, in fact, I, I was just 
thinking here, and may, maybe I can add to uh, CRT, maybe critical sex theory. I wonder if that queer might, theory would be considered. Is that what it is? Queer, it's, it's queer theory. Queer now. theory. Okay. Yeah. And and so really. So so you have queer theory, you have feminist theory, you have race theory, you have. Um, okay. Um, so would you say queer theory is really what Chapter Seven is all about? Can partially like a, a, a sexual uh, revolution. Uh, okay. Queer theory as a subset, as an actual uh, academic discipline, doesn't really come into the fore until say the 1980s, okay. late 1980s, late 1990s. It's a because new homosexuality yeah. for the most part okay. is. Uh, still viscerally reacted against by the general public in the 70s it's not i mean you you start to see some films coming out and things like that but it's but for most people uh, you you know they they wouldn't accept that all critical theory though okay uh is based on two assumptions to to your point so the first is that the world can be divided up into two classes of people there's the oppressors and there's the oppressed right. you're in one of those two classes and Secondly, the dominant narrative, especially in the West, is built so that it's not necessarily a true narrative. It's just, it, it, again, this is the postmodern portion of it. Yeah. It's built to keep the oppressors in control. In power, right. And that's, so everything else comes out of that. And that's why right. you're to be critical yeah. of all of these ideas that 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 you consider normal that you could you know the the, the nuclear family right. or that uh you should uh, be a good uh, citizen and pay your taxes and not question yeah. uh the laws or things of that nature all of this uh comes out you should question even your meta narrative right the, the what is the big view of life well there is no one big view of life you're the ultimate arbiter of that right right so it that's it all of this is under question because it's it's part of the tools that the oppressors right. use to keep and, you and that's and, and that's the uh terrible outcome of the frankfurt school like you said everything is in question now i want to say like um to their credit some things have to be questioned sure absolutely. but they absolutized everything and literally nothing uh, was spared and and there is no answer that the, the the problem is when you're when you're going to be critical when you're going to critique something usually you have to have a standard against which to critique it they're critiquing everything but there is no standard and one of the key points that those who argue against critical theory make is there is no vision for what a just society looks like there is no vision for how we know we're progressing out of this hegemonic uh, bifurcation. There is no way for us. All we know is today is bad. Right. And that's what, that's what you'll hear all the time, you know, uh, white supremacy. And to, this is, well, what does it look like when it's not? Right. What, what does the perfect society look like? And we don't, they don't offer that power. So there is no standard against which we can critique anything except to say everything that you believe, everything right. that's, that's considered appropriate in normal discourse today is uh, null and void. Right, right. Well, you and I talked before the show started that we would ask for callers. Yeah. So uh, I'll put out the number there, and I know we're heading to a break pretty soon, but if you are a teacher or a parent, uh, maybe you're involved in uh, the PTA, and you're wondering why there's so much um, 
sex education or it's just rammed down uh, your throat, you might want to give us a call and maybe we can help you understand why culture is heading that way or is is the way it is right now. Again, chapter 7 is the new left and the politicization of sex. That's chapter 7 of Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And in the book, he's trying to help us understand why all of a sudden politics are and, and sex are just almost inseparable. Um, and it seems like what, uh, sex is in the drive driver's seat right now. So almost anything that's legislated, uh, what gets on the top is has something to do with LGBT, homosexuality, yeah. um, transgenderism, all of these things. It's because, again, uh, in Chapter 7, Truman does a, a good job of identifying the the marriage between Marx and Freud. And maybe you can do a little quick teaser, uh, Lenny. A, a lot of our... Um, talks nowadays is is blaming everything on marxism but you mm. you had a good insight you said why isn't anybody mentioning yeah. freud why are we not critiquing freud with critical theory because it's at least as much dependent upon freud as it is upon marx and and the sexual repression the sexual identity piece uh, the psychological inward turn is what is supposed to be repressive but nobody says hey you know that that freudian stuff we don't buy any of that. We'll talk more about that after the break. We're discussing Chapter 7 of Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. We'll be right back after a few messages. The mission of Apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. You're invited to one of the best discussions of the year, Ask a Jew, Ask a Gentile, Monday, February 20th, 7 p.m. at Pasadena First Church of the Nazarene. A rousing discussion with AM870 radio show host Dennis Prager. What do Jews believe about the Messiah? How do the Jewish and Christian faith view life after death? And Salem radio host Eric Metaxas. I always have a ton of fun with Dennis Prager. We will discuss Judaism, Christianity, their similarities, their differences. Moderated by KKLA's own Scott Furrow. Ask a Jew, ask a Gentile, a fun event that'll challenge your mind and reinforce your faith. Don't miss Ask a Jew, Ask a Gentile, Monday, February 20th, 7 p.m. at Pasadena First Church of the Nazarene. Regular and VIP tickets are available at kkla.com, keyword ask, kkla.com, keyword ask. That's February 20th. Tickets available at kkla.com, keyword ask. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. 
Well, welcome back to the second half hour of the Apologetics.com radio show. I'm Harry Edwards, your host for this evening. It is January 28th, and uh, Happy New Year to everyone that's listening. And uh, Lenny is my special guest um, for this evening. We don't have Jacob tonight as... Um, He's just busy with uh, other important church work, so that's good. Well, he'll be back next month, though. But uh, we put out a number out there. Uh, you can give us a call right now. The number is 888-995-5552 if you want to join our discussion. Again, we tried to set up the whole idea of um, why a lot of these— um, why sex seems to be prominent in culture today. And when I say sex in general, we're talking about transgenderism, LGBT, homosexual issues. Well, uh, even even in heterosexual aspects, you know, yes. the idea that um, if you're a virgin, you might be mocked mm. for it. How strange. Not, not, not even, you know, necessarily made fun of, but... but why would you be a virgin? Is it, so sex becomes a central aspect of self-identity, um, and we see it in our, our advertisements. Right. We see it in our sitcoms, right? right. We, we always, even the, the, like I said, the lovable Lothario, mm -hmm. the Joey Tribbianis or the Barry Stinsons uh, that play out in our, they're, they're, you know, oh, that's okay. You know, they're, they're abusing thousands of women on the TV show, but we still love them because right, they have right. a heart of gold. Well, maybe the fact that they're abusing all of these women shows that they don't have a heart of gold. Right, right. So it, it's the new left that really is trying to take down all of these institutions. And uh, the one of the biggest would be our current sexual mores or norms. Yeah, so again, Freud had, had this idea that... Um, to be, well, no, he actually had this idea that to have a civil society, you need to repress some of these desires. Yeah, he said, he said that our, we had two principles, the, the pleasure principle, which was innate in all of us. We, we have desires. We naturally drive towards sex because we are sexual beings. So That's Freud, right. Freud was the first one who says, we're going to put sex in the absolute center of right. our identity. You have the id, the ego, and the superego, and right, all of right. this stuff. But there's an unconscious desire, even from our earliest formation as an infant, where we're in the oral phase, right? Where we're looking right. for it, it, that satisfaction is actually a sexual satisfaction. Um, and then he says, but we can't be freewheeling sexual beings all the time because anarchy would break out. People would be raping each other, taking people off the street, right? That's not civil. Right, right. So we have to repress that. So we have the the uh, the repression principle. Right, right. And and these two sit in tension right, right. with one another, and they can't be resolved. That's That was Freud's thought, that That's you can't Freud's have that right, society. Right. Now enter, uh, again, Frankfurt School, and uh, Marcuse's thought on this. Herbert Marcuse was a... Um, a sociologist, right, uh, in, in the mid-20th century. Uh, and uh, he was a professor, and he had this idea. His thoughts were a little bit nuanced. That's why it seemed so convincing. And he was saying that Freud, uh, taking, borrowing from Freud uh, and a little critique from Freud saying that he didn't go far enough 
because perhaps Freud was just stuck in in this historical moment, and so Marcuse and the and, and the other Frankfurt School yeah. folks thought that perhaps if you just take Freud's ideas, take it out of history, perhaps it might apply today. So, um, so perhaps in, instead of having uh, sex being repressed, perhaps really what you need is to liberate it so that you fulfill your, your true self, I guess. And so that's what we have now. Um, and, and so it, it uh, from, from this crazy idea, you have all of these other uh, sexual deviant ideas flow from it, and, and we can just go down the list here, but, um, but let's, let's talk about feminism. Uh, what, the difference perhaps between the first wave feminist and the second wave feminist? Well, yes. Because um, that, that, that flows from here. Feminism right. flows so, from this idea. So in idea. the Frankfurt School, the first, the first guy to, to kind of do this, to say, you know, what Marx got wrong was it isn't, it isn't the um, kings and the peasants and then the nobles and the serfs and then the owners and that, right? Marx saw everything right. in capitalist economic terms. Right, right. And he says that those classes are getting closer and closer together. And Wilhelm Reich... Right. from the Frankfurt School, says it's not capitalism that drives people, it's their sexual. Right, right. And, and actually, sex is getting a little bit freer and a mm -hmm. little bit freer as society. So, so we need to look at the advent of history sexually as opposed to merely economically, and one will follow the other. Right, right. That was their idea, that, that the two work in tandem. Right. And, and Marcusa takes this and says, yeah, but let's... let's expand on it and and he believed unlike freud he thinks he thinks freud's wrong in the fact that if you unleash uh full sexual liberty even for children because mm -hmm. right. what reich would go so far and he, he right. was hesitant right and pedophilia was a problem for him that's but, right but but it was an inconsistency in his that's right in his because uh, one process. one can always say, "Hey, it, it's wrong for your time, but could there be another time where it might be right?" Right. But he 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 just avoided that issue. Yes, right. exactly, exactly. But right. Marcusa jumps in right. and says, "No, um, you know, there's going to be a time where it would be strange to have people say, well, 'Well, I'm not going to teach my child about masturbation yet.'" Right. And he's you know. What? How could that be? Why would you do that? Right, right. Uh, and in combining that with Marx, again, bringing in the state, he, he would say that that would be unlawful to prohibit yes, that. Yes, yes, yep. exactly. And, exactly. So that's so Marcuse comes and jumps in and says, the problem is that there are consequences to sex. Right. And, of course, one of the main functions that sexual activity does is produce children well this has different outcomes depending on whether you're male or female and um, he recognized that and he said well there's got to be some way of equalizing the scales because women will always suffer a larger burden of the results of sexual liberation because they're going to get pregnant right which which changes the dynamic and now that keeps men in power. And so so the, this feminism now is part of the second wave. Yeah, so right. the first wave of feminism was, hey, treat us as right. thinking individuals, 
Susan B. Anthony, where we can weigh the consequences of political discourse, where we can weigh the consequences of our eventual desires for liberty, for governance. Mm -hmm. And we can be contributing partners, even economically, if we so desire. We can go to work. World War II happens, of course, and it shows that women can jump into a mechanized 20th century assembly line or whatever the work yeah. is required because all the men were off of war, so the women were left to do it. And that kind of answers some of that question. And then the next push is, well, wait a minute, how do we then equalize the sexual playing field? And it starts to say, well, we have to do something about this idea of linking biology and sex with the outcomes of biologic that women have to be the baby bearers. Women right. can't have sex like the men. And I've always found it, thought it odd that even today feminists tend to measure their success and their equality using the man's playbook. Yeah, that's true. Because <laughs> most women, it's not like how many sexual partners can I get, right? That's that's not how women think. That's just not how they're wired. Right, right. And it's strange that they consider that the form of of achievement that they're going for. Right, right. right. You know, that doesn't mean equality. That <laughs> I know. Uh, well, I, I wanted to mention this. Truman writes about uh, this uh, woman who was a lover of Sartre. I believe, um, de, de Beauvier. Yeah. Simone um, de Beauvier. Yeah. Yes. The Second Sex was the book that she the, put out. That's right, that's right. Now, I, I believe, so So she started uh, sort of writing in this second wave sense of feminism, but a particular feminist named Shulamith Firestone, I thought she outlined the uh, feminist agenda pretty well, and I'm summarizing here, but there's there's about six in this agenda of the second wave feminist, and I want to talk a little bit about this because it is kind of scary, it is kind of scary, and at the same time prophetic, and so as Christian apologists, how do we uh, deal with this, all right? So we want to get to that, but the first one is the distinction between gender is eliminated in this second wave feminist thinking. And we kind of see that, right? You were mention, mentioning that that it was Firestone that made the distinction between gender and sex, right? Yeah. Well, So, so sex is biology, but right. then gender is, is what, what you feel about your Yeah, is your, is your role is that your you role. take on. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that and that's, De Beauvier, I think, starts starts that process. Right. All right. Okay. I, we we see that happening now. Again, again, a lot of this writing was in the early twentieth century. Yeah. Firestone wrote actually in nineteen seventy. She she takes De Beauvier's writing and oh, got it. And, and okay. Extends 19, it. Got it. Okay. Uh, number two, heterosex is replaced with polymorphous pansexuality. And uh, that's just a sophisticated term that means anything goes. Anything goes. Anything any, goes, pretty Any much. type of coupling or throupling that you so Whatever, desire. even If women species. are going to be equal, we can do... <laughs> yes. Whatever. I know. So so that is 
uh, we'll talk more about that later. Number three, uh, reproduction is accomplished through technology and would be available to both men and women. So like you were saying, Lenny, how pregnancy kind of burdens the woman. Well, yeah. if, if women want to be free of that, well, there you go. You can be free of that through technology. You have artificial wombs. Now, you were mentioning how some company is developing. Well, no, there's a there's a futurist uh, who just put out a very kind of famous video, uh, Hashem Al-Ghali, hmm. um, and he put out this video to show about uh, creating basically baby making factories baby making where you can we can birth up to 30,000 babies uh through artificial wombs oh, and okay. why would you want to be pregnant because it slows you down for nine months of your life and you have to have the morning sickness and then you have to go through the pain of childbirth and you know you, you with all of that that's so much noise and and these bio factories will take all of the distasteful aspects of reproduction away and we can have these babies here, and and it's a it's an eight minute video that's actually pretty shocking, mm. in disturbing in its value. Now, if you've ever read Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, yeah. this is how Brave New World also starts with with the baby factories. Mm. And matter of fact, the people who have babies naturally they're considered the savages, right? Mm. And the only the what the civilized people do is they they anesthetize themselves through sex. And through soma, which is the drug of the day, mm. and that's you know you, they're all programmed to say this is my role, and we're all serving the greater society, and there's no more war, and we're right. all happy right. because we all are automatons, basically, right, pretty much. And you're anesthetized, right? Too. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, the, uh, the fourth uh, agenda here of the second wave feminists is the role of mother is abolished. So that makes sense. That kind of follows from number three. Yeah, because uh, you don't want uh, she she has more work to do right. than than daddy. Right. And again, this is such or a, even more work. This is such a superficial way yeah. to understand right. parenting. I could right. easily craft a narrative that says, "Look, the most valuable people that we have is the next generation. Therefore, the best people that we can possibly find should be the ones who are rearing and developing." those emotional relationships with the next generation. And the guy who we schlep off to do some menial job just so he can get a few bucks to eat, that's called a servant. Hmm. You know, so I can easily provide a narrative that shows why motherhood is the ultimate high calling, why it is important to have the best people be the mothers and not the going off to work and doing whatever you know, right, right. but but that's not how our culture narrates this position. They say motherhood is the drudgery. Right. It's well, you you want to have a career first, don't right, you? Right, right. I mean, you have to have self fulfillment. Maybe self fulfillment happens when you're fulfilling the needs of others. Right. Which is what Jesus taught. Or us. what you were created to be. Right. Yeah. Uh, the fifth one is. Difference in strength between children and adults is eliminated by cultural means. And I was mentioning this. Now, I don't have data to uh, speak of, but uh, I know in this culture right now, we have ways where children can be emancipated from their parents if they just 
go to the judge and say, hey, judge, uh, my parents are X, Y, Z. And then based on that, parents can be, or, you know, they can be separated as families. Oh, yeah. um, or more, more applicably, since January 1st, new law came into California. If you're, say, living in Texas, and Texas does not allow minors to undergo gender mm. transition surgery, you can come to California and California says you California says the state can override the parents' desires for the destiny of the child. Mm. That the state knows even though the child is fleeing to California, coming to California right. with no prior background, right, right. the state knows better than the parents right. what's good for that child. Right. Yeah. That, and that that's that's a law that's on the books today. Today, huh? It passed. Yeah, you're right. My goodness, what are we coming to here? But uh, the sixth and the and final agenda of the second wave feminists is technology replaces human work. Yeah. So everything's just automated because we can be burdened by work. And this very this is the very Star Trek vibe, right? We just we just explore space for the exploration of space. We've got replicators. We don't need to actually do anything. <laughs> Except, of course, when the warp core breaks down or something like that, then everybody's doing something. But, right. but that's, the, that's, the, that's the fiction that makes it sound so good. And a lot of what I just read is happening already. Now, this was written, like I said, 50, 60 years ago. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the technology that is um, rampant today was not even conceived back then. No, and it's amazing it is. That, that how how prescient those guys were in seeing these kinds of things. Well, I'm wondering, um, again, uh, Truman doesn't really tackle this, but um, Lenny and I have been just sitting here just wondering, what does a mature Christian do in light of all of this? So we know that culture the West right now is embroiled in this sexual revolution. And it's, it's done in a sneaky way. Yeah. It's not, it's not some revolution with arms. Uh, there are no bombs going off. And again, if we are to trust uh, the, uh, maybe the methods of the Frankfurt School, I believe they are, they're, they're successful today, no doubt. Um, now it didn't take on right away in the '60s, but it's always been kind of there, mm. and it it finally is manifesting in crazy ways right now. Where um, we don't even bat an eye if uh, we talk about LGBT issues. It's just you know if we see a rainbow, that's just we say, oh, that that's just normal now. Yeah. So our kids are growing up with um, sexual norms, kind of like in a in chaos right now right you know so what do we do so a a lot of this we were mentioning lenny you and i that a lot of this has to do with our identity really and and the quest for meaning and significance Mm -hmm. so if you can't find it in a class you know you keep searching you keep searching eventually you just find it in yourself uh you architect whatever you want to be including your gender including your sex and we end up harming ourselves right Absolutely. but what what is the christian response and what's the biblical response to this in the next you know 6 minutes that we have well here's the first thing that i think is very interesting if you look at all of this what you see 
is a desire for individuals to reverse the consequences of the first sin. So let's, let's go back all the way to Genesis 3, okay? There were certain aspects put in place. God gave man dominion over the animals, over the earth. God gave man a wife and said she will be his helpmate. And he told them they can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Right. Now, Adam does the exact opposite of all those things. Eve listens to the snake instead of having dominion over the created order. The created order mm-hmm. tells her what to do. She fails in the sense of not listening to God's law and entices her husband as opposed to him leading her. She leads right. him. And God prov- presents a curse on them. He would be cursed with the work of the field. From sweat will come his brow. Her curse is to have children in pain, childbirth and labor. And she will desire to overrule her husband, but he will dominate her. And in all of these things, what you see the, the Marxists, the critical theorists trying to do, is undo each one of these curses. They don't want to work from the sweat of their brow. They don't want to have the childbirth pain, right? They mm-hmm. want to eliminate the distinctions between man and woman so right. that there is no dominance. Roles are they, confused, right? They, they want to eliminate the natural order even of childbirth itself so yeah. that you can be a woman and right. not have a, a uterus. You, so, eliminate the hierarchy too. And, so and the, so it's, yeah. it's, when, it's literally an attempt to undermine God's order and i think god put that order there not necessarily only as a punishment but as a consequence and there's a there's a difference right there's a difference between saying so for example a punishment if you tell your children okay look i'm going to give you a credit card for college you're to spend only a hundred dollars a month on it or something like that and you and I'll send you the hundred dollars, and we'll pay the hundred dollar bill. Okay, you can you can do that. Now, there's there's if your child violates that and spends more, then you can say, well, there's a there's a punishment that I can give you in that I'm not going to maybe pay the hundred dollars, but there's also a consequence in that you got now three or four or five hundred dollars in debt mm-hmm. that you have to somehow work back. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily a punishment. It's just like we, you put yourself in a bad situation, and now you got to dig yourself out of it. Yeah. And I think that that's part of the process that God tries to prevent Adam and Eve from going further into sin by kind of putting some of these guardrails up. And that's exactly what these guys are trying to undo. And when we, what I find is when we stick as close as we can to God's order, we tend to be happier. This is why we're seeing depression rates raise astronomically in Western countries. The countries that are the most egalitarian, Sweden and some of the Nordic countries, tend to actually have the most reinforced gender roles. It's a, it's a, sociologists are like, why is this? You would think that, that the sexes would blend together. No, they actually tend to separate. Mm-hmm. The people who are happiest are living more traditional, quote-unquote, uh, roles yeah. because what you find is it's not about you. It's about others. Right. How many women do you know who can't get pregnant, who are desperate to feel that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
that's to take that away and say that's a burden that's ridiculous yeah, yeah. how many men do you know who are depressed because they 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 feel like a failure because they can't support their family they don't have a good job they know that they're sitting around just playing video games all day and that's and they so they have no self-worth right. um so in all of these things if we look at what the model is that god provides then what we'll find and if we're working not simply for ourselves but working because there's this other person here who i need to provide for there's there's value in that and that's what i've seen over and over again is is the idea of jesus saying love your neighbor he who is uh the greatest is the servant of all yeah and if you're serving your children what's best for them if you're serving your wife if you're serving your husband if you're serving your community not hey my community should be doing for me. You, they should be paying me reparations or something. But right. what can I do to benefit the community? If you turn that script around, I think that's when we start to find true meaning and true satisfaction in life. Right. Well said, Lenny. So really, a, a lot of our issues can be solved by looking to Scripture and see that... Um, God has the perfect plan for us. He created us. He knows us. And um, just like you were mentioning, in, in a parent-child relationship, many times the child does not know the end from the beginning. Yeah. The parent, on the other hand, sees it all. They've experienced it. They love their child. They know what's good for the child. And so in many ways, we're like children, right? We're, we're grasping in the dark. We don't know. Uh, and yet our Heavenly Father, who loves us, uh, has given us guidelines, has given us rules, uh, because we will, <laughs> we will tend to stray. And if we don't have these rules, we will, like you were saying, we will suffer the consequences and there will be punishment. Uh, I, I, like, I like what you did with uh, just how a, uh, a Marxist-slash-Freudian view seeks to undo all of the consequences and the punishment of sin. But again, in, in a gospel-centered idea, it's Christ that actually can take away the punishment and sin because he is God. And that's really the message of the yeah. gospel. Uh, I, I know I've encountered some dear friends who somehow can't get away from all of the injustices and all of the inequity. But it's just bigger than us, and and really, it, we live in a fallen world. So I guess my appeal to my brothers and sisters and our friends is: look to Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Look yeah. to Jesus because <laughs> He has the power to forgive, and He forgives you and loves you. Well, you've been listening to Apologetics.com Radio, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Our hope is that you've learned some aspect about the Christian worldview that strengthens your faith and make you want to learn more. We need to make Christianity attractive, um, as Pascal would say. Uh, so special thanks to my one and only panel, uh, <laughs> Lenny, this evening, and uh, to the behind-the-scenes sound engineer, Remy and Colin. Thanks, guys, for making us sound good, making sure the mics work. And special thank you to our listeners. Until next time, good night. <laughs>